Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We are talking today about courageously proclaiming Christ, and please stand with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people of the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And Lord, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would would cause us to to pay attention today, Lord, to what you have to say to us. By your spirit, Lord, through your word, make whatever changes you want in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So we're in Acts 17, 1 through 15, and what we're seeing here is uh, two parallel narratives, and they they really line up well together. We're seeing Paul's missions work in Thessalonica and Berea, and and they do parallel one another. So here's what you see. You see, uh, following the same pattern, uh, a proclamation of the gospel, and then uh, some conversions to Christ, people coming to faith in Christ, and then some opposition to the gospel, and then you see basically them being evicted out of these cities, okay? So we're going to see Paul getting thrown out of two more cities, basically, okay? Now, in this passage of Scripture, I want you to see with me five distinguishing marks of Paul's courageous proclamation of the gospel, and I believe that every Christian can relate to these. Courage, commitment, converts, critics, and the church. Courage, commitment, converts, critics, and the church. And and the point that this passage is making is that Christ inspires his church to courageously proclaim 
him together, not alone, but together. And this is what we're going to see. Now, as we talk about courageously proclaiming Christ, I've got a few goals for it this morning and some things I hope will take place. And I want to let you know about them. There's three of them. Number one, I hope that as a result of hearing this sermon, you will recognize whether or not you are a believer in Jesus or not. Number two, that you would be able to identify your part in you know, boldly proclaiming the gospel, whether you have a front lines speaking type part or whether you have a behind the scenes supporting part. I want you to be able to connect the dots that you would be near enough to the actual proclamation of the gospel that you can see the difference that your ministry is making. And then third, I hope that as a result of recognizing whether you're a believer or not, and identifying, if you're a believer, identifying your part in boldly proclaiming the gospel, that you would engage wholeheartedly in doing that wherever God's called you to do that. So it's pretty simple. So first I want to call your attention to Paul's courage. Verse 1. You'll notice it says that they passed through two cities and didn't stop. And then came to Thessalonica and there was a synagogue there. That's the reason they went all the way there. And now, Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. At this point in time, there would have been 45 to 60,000 people living there. And it says in verse 2 that Paul went in as was his custom. Key phrase there, as was his custom. It's very big, actually, because he followed the pattern of Jesus himself. You go back to the Gospels, and what you notice is that when Jesus came into a town, he would go into the synagogue. So Paul... His custom was, what he was continually doing, was going to the synagogue. Now, drop down to verse 10, we're, because these are parallel narratives, I'm going to take you from Thessalonica to Berea on each one of these points. So verse 10, the church sends Paul and Silas away from Thessalonica at night to Berea, saves their lives, basically, and when they arrive, what do they do? They go into the Jewish synagogue. So this is the practice of the custom, and it really shows Paul's courage. The reason why is because he had already received so much opposition from the Jews already that it's a wonder that he went into these synagogues but not for courage. Some people would say foolishness. We call it courage. Think about what Paul has been through already. On the island of Cyprus, he was oppressed by a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. At Pisidian Antioch, the crowds were filled with jealousy and contradicted him and blasphemed against God. They aroused all the devout men of the city, the Jews, to persecute Paul and Barnabas. At Iconium, they face bitterness. They are forced to flee the city. At Lystra, Paul is nearly killed. In spite of all these things, Paul marches into the synagogues at Thessalonica and Berea because of courage. It was, as his, it was as was his custom. Now I'll point out two courageous men from church history. You can point out a lot of people in church history that were courageous. There are courageous people in this room. But the two I want to point out to you is Athanasius. He lived from 296 to 373. And Jonathan Edwards lived from 1703 to 1758. Athanasius defended the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, at a time when the Arian heresy was really threatening the church. Jonathan Edwards, on the other hand, had a heart for doctrine and a heart for the lost. And these two men were forced out of their places of service because of their convictions. Athanasius was removed from his position in Alexandria because of his strong stand 
on the deity of Christ that the Bible very clearly teaches. Jonathan Edwards was asked to leave his pastorate in Northampton in part because he believed, get this, that church members should be converted. That, that church members should actually be saved. <laughs> that people that want to join a local assembly of Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving people should be believers. And you think, well, that's kind of obvious. Not back then, I guess. There were people in churches that were entrenched in churches who said, we're not leaving and we're not getting saved. <laughs> they, 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 they were going to force this. Now, now today, you want to come join Grace Church of Orange, you know, a lot of churches do certain things. We, we ask you to give your testimony. Come talk to the elders and let us get to know you and give your testimony. We want to we see and then observe your life and, 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 and actually see if, if you have a testimony of faith in Christ. And do, has anyone ever, you know, in, all, in the history of Grace Church of Orange ever slipped through the cracks and become a church member and maybe, maybe weren't saved? I'm thinking that probably might have happened. Hopefully not today. You know, hopefully none of you. But again, we do need, as Paul said, we need to... We need to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Well, these two men, Athanasius and, and Edwards, stood for core truths of the Christian faith and didn't cave to the temptation to, um, to compromise. They had courage. They held their convictions. Why? Because they loved Jesus and his church. And we do learn the importance of courage, uh, even from Paul's example. Not just moral courage where you say, I'm going to do the right thing no matter what opposition I get, but physical courage too. Think about Paul walking in to the synagogues in Thessalonica and Berea, knowing full well that he'd been you know, run out of town in other places for doing the exact same thing that he was about to do in both of these synagogues. What's the opposite of courage? He's being a coward, right? Cowardice. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Courage actually counteracts fear. I'm, I'm guessing that as Paul was walking into these synagogues, there might have been a little apprehension, like what's going to happen next? Maybe a bit nervous or so, but he didn't let that impact what he was called to do. Psalm 27 verse one says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I Fear. A lot of us battle fear. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. So don't believe the lie that says, you know, you can't do anything for Jesus and the gospel. Don't succumb to fear. I mean, there was a time in my life when I was afraid to tell the truth that I was afraid to tell the truth because maybe someone would think or say something that was, was something I didn't want them to think or say. Paul, Paul had Christ as the anchor of his soul. The Bible is very clear in Hebrews. It says that, that our hope in Christ is the anchor for our souls. And, and he was compelled to courageous action. That's what God wants us to be, compelled to courageous action. Here's Paul. Formerly an angry aggressor against Christ, now he is a courageous uh, ambassador for Christ. So he had courage. He, he went in to these synagogues knowing full well that he might be killed. He might be run out of town. Next, I want you to see Paul's commitment. 
What was he committed to doing? And verse 2 tells us that on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So his commitment was to communicate God's truth and, and proclaim Christ. He wanted to get the gospel out. And his courage was not rooted in his own ideas, his own logic. It was rooted in, in the word of God. The living and abiding word of God, that's where God wants our courage and our commitment to be rooted in, 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 the, in his word that does not change. Our thoughts change. God's word never changes. And what did Paul do? It says that he reasoned. He reasoned. The Greek word there is dialegomai. It's where we get our English word dialogue. He was not doing a formal preaching of a sermon in front of a group of people. He was having a discussion with them. He was going back and forth and having questions and answers because he was engaging their hearts and their minds. He got them thinking. And what was he having them think about? Well, he had them think about the authority of Scripture and the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection and and the absolute clarity of the gospel. Those three things. I want to look at those three things. As we think about his commitment, let's talk about the authority of Scripture. He's bringing them the Word of God he is reasoning from the scriptures. Now, he's in a synagogue. Synagogues are filled with Jews. Now, they also have God-fearing Gentiles present as well. The Jews that were there and the God-fearing Gentiles that were there would have considered the word of God as authoritative and binding upon their lives. The Old Testament scriptures, which recounted their past, all the things that God had done, all the, the um, faithfulness of God, but also all the unfaithfulness of his people. And the Old Testament scriptures were pointing very clearly to a Messiah who would would remove the curse due to sin. And what Paul is telling them is that your hope that you have been holding to for so long is rooted, is realized in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Messiah, the only Savior. And he's coming to them with the word of God. He is is considering it binding upon their consciences. Now, Jesus himself confirmed the authority of Scripture. You go over to Matthew chapter 5, and what you will see is Jesus very clearly upholding the authority of, of the word of God. So here's the incarnate word upholding the authority of the written word. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. He's saying, I am not coming to, to take away the Old Testament scriptures. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus himself confirmed the authority of scripture and the apostles confirmed it. You look here in the book of Acts, just go over to the chapter three, Acts chapter 3 and verse 18, very clearly, in the apostolic preaching, says this, verse 18, what, what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, all, all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. You go down to verse 22, Moses said, he's quoting Moses, 
The Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's saying, you don't listen to Jesus, you're going to be lost forever in hell. You'll be under the wrath of God because of your sin. So Paul was very intent on the authority of Scripture, and as we think about that, and even, by the way, in, in Acts 10.43, again, the apostolic preaching, to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. But you bring the word of God to people. I want you to know something. First of all, acceptance or rejection of the authority of scripture is not a matter of human logic, but of faith. You cannot argue someone into belief, into an acknowledgement of God's word. Only God can give the faith to believe that his word is authoritative. Why are things this way? Things are like they are in the world because man has fallen and he is fighting against God with every ounce of his being and, and he is under God's just wrath for his sin. Now, among many people, human reason reigns supreme. They think it's just what I think and, and that, that's, that's, what, that's what the truth is. Well, the Bible makes it really clear not all people have faith. So not all people are going to acknowledge the authority of Scripture. Faith is a gift. God knows who has it. God knows who's pretending. Just this week, I met a man, very deceptive man, who claimed he had a, res a, a revelation of Jesus Christ apart from Scripture. In fact, God sent him down my front walkway to talk with me, and he even asked me, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He said, oh, have you ever heard of, and then he gives this totally obscure title. I said, um, can you repeat that? And he gives me the title again. I'm like, no, I haven't. And he says, well, I have read every religious book there ever has been, and I have studied every religion. And this guy's 80 years old, almost 80 years old. And he's telling me that um, he had a revelation of Jesus Christ apart from Scripture. Now, he's being totally, entirely subjective, right? And, and he is his own authority. And he's coming to me as this older man who has this wealth of wisdom that I needed to benefit from. And he said to me at one point, because I'm, I'm, I'm basically going toe-to-toe -to -toe and saying, you know what, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. He goes, well, we need new revelation. We don't need the scriptures. We need new revelation from God. I said, you are a Mormon, aren't you? He's like, how did you know? I said, well, you have another gospel. And, and I asked him, I said, and I said, with all due respect, because you're an older man, but with all due respect, what does Galatians 1 say about those who bring another gospel? He says, um, they're accursed. I said, you're accursed. I said, what does the end of Revelation say about those who add to God's word? He says, curses. I said, that's, your, that's you. I said, you're deceptive. You're a false prophet. You're wrong. And I asked him, how long have you been believing this? And he says, 50 years. I said, I hope that when you go home tonight and you lay your head on your pillow, you will think about what I have told you today. Because you're lost, you're arrogant, you're empty, you're deceptive, and you're coming to people as an old man with a, well, like, with a wealth of wisdom, and you're like a deadly spider in a web trying to draw people in. He was very, he was very, um, very clever about how he came across. I said, you don't understand the message of Scripture because you're not born again. And he says, well, I have studied every religion. And we had, by the way, it was a very kind, uh, cordial conversation. It really was. 
We didn't get mad at each other or anything like that. He says, I've read every holy book. But he would not acknowledge the authority of God's word. He would only acknowledge his own authority. And he would not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God, only that he is a God. I said, you know, you guys are just like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're changing their book. But you want people to think you're deceptive and you're lost. I'm praying that this man will, 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 will believe God's word and what it says about Jesus. I'm praying that we will all do that. That we will all believe God's word and what it says about Jesus. It's very easy for, for people who profess to be believers to say, well, I'm under the authority of God's word. And then not live under the authority of God's word. Someone who will say, well, you know, I came to faith in Christ and at that point I said I believe the Bible, so I'm good. I'm like, well, you're like the person who gets married and says, hey, I told my spouse I love them the day we got married and so we're covered. But you're not showing it, you're not saying it, you're not doing anything about that. You're in trouble. So if, we're if we profess faith in Christ and, and we say the, the word of God is, is authoritative over our lives, that means that you and I will we'll literally acknowledge God and acknowledge that his word reigns supreme over us and we will actually know it and do it in his power and not just give lip service to that. And by the way, if you run into people and you will run into people all the time where they're gonna say the Bible's not true, you need to know you don't need to defend God's word. When I was talking to this man, I wasn't defending the word of God. I was asserting its authority. I was sharing the word of God with him. You know what Charles Spurgeon said about the word of God and its authority and about how you don't need to defend it? The word of God, he says, is like a lion. You don't need to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. You just present the word of God. You just proclaim the word of God. God, the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Cornelius Van Til said, the Bible is authoritative on everything of which it speaks. Moreover, he said, it speaks of everything. Now Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, not his own mind. Verse three tells us he explained, he explained and proved it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So he didn't just have a dialogue, a conversation, which even many of us have a hard time getting to that. But then he proclaimed it, and he explained it. He did exposition of scripture. He explained it. Literally, that means opened the scriptures to them. He explained and he proved. Literally, proved means he gave it to them. He placed before them all the evidence that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He said it was necessary for Christ to suffer and, and die and rise from the dead, and, and this Jesus He's very clear about it. This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He's not one way among many. He is the only way to be saved. He was very clear about it. By the way, um, these words explained and proved are, are present participles, and they signify continual action. He's continuing to have this, this discussion and this proclamation and this explanation with the people. That's the, the methods of his reasoning. He laid out many convincing proofs. And you know what we don't know? Exactly what scriptures he took them to in the Old Testament. But we do know that he had at least three days worth. He kept doing this for three days and probably going over things over and over again with them. 
My guess is he probably went to Isaiah 52. Now some of you are saying, don't you mean 53? No, Isaiah 52. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up. There's the cross. And shall be exalted. There's the resurrection. And many were astonished at you. His appearance marred beyond human semblance. There's the cross. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He will sprinkle many nations. I'm sure he moved on into Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. There's the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of us have gone astray like sheep. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's the substitutionary atonement, where Jesus took, took our sin in our place, and it was... It was the will of God to crush him, Isaiah 53 says. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, there's the cross, he shall see his offspring. There's a resurrection. He shall prolong his days. There's a resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's a resurrection. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. There's, there's God's wrath being appeased by the sacrifice of Christ. And by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted to righteousness. There's the resurrected Christ. There's the reigning Christ. There's the returning Christ. He's not a dead Savior. He's a, lot, a living Savior who has borne our iniquities. I'm sure that Paul took them to Psalm 22. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him like they were ridiculing him from the cross. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. But Psalm 22 also gets to the resurrection. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, this living Savior. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He didn't stay dead. He was buried and he rose from the dead on the third day. He rules over the nations. And they shall become, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. This is what Paul is doing. Paul is, is proclaiming the righteousness of God in Christ. Maybe he took them to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's the resurrection. Or maybe Hosea 13, 14, O death, where, is, where are your plagues? O, o Sheol, where is your sting? Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians, quoting. See, Christ's work is clearly revealed in the Old Testament for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And he's reasoning with them through the scriptures. He's, he's giving the authority of, of God's word. He is giving the necessity of Christ's death. See, the incarnation is the uh, hinge of history. It's the pivot. Everything gets its significance from Jesus, the eternal Son of God, arrested, condemned, killed, buried, stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Greeks. People will say left and right, they might tell you this tomorrow or even tonight. They say Jesus is good for ethics. Oh, you know, Jesus is really good for 
morals and values and advice, but authority? Well, we get that from Plato and Socrates and our other favorites. Cross, death, blood, craziness, foolishness. But I love what Paul does. He deals with their problem. He doesn't let them off the hook. He doesn't make it easy on them. He tells them the truth because he knows their hatred of it, and he still tells them the truth. He's not afraid. He's telling them the Old Testament promised a Messiah. Well, they wanted a political one. Ultimate salvation can never be political. He counteracts lies with the truth. He tells them about this man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He tells them about Jesus who said, even as the serpent was lifted up, so I must be lifted up. See, the cross meant death. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He's speaking of the crucifixion. He says, I am the good shepherd. I, I know my own and they know me. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's substitution. And Jesus even went set his face to Jerusalem and his own followers begged him not to go. And, and why did he suffer? Why, why did he suffer? Why did he go to the cross? Acts tells us very, very clearly in the apostolic preaching that it was determined by the, the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We see man needs saving. Man is lost and Jesus came to save man. The Bible tells us, Old Testament, this, the soul that sins must die. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. You see, God wants to forgive you. Let's make it personal. God wants to forgive you but he must remain just. So he must do something about sin, and he, he sent Jesus to die on the cross. So he took your sins and put them on Jesus at the cross. That's why a believer can say, well, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God must punish sin. His own holy nature insists upon it. And so he's telling them, this is the way it is. This is the truth. So I'm telling you too. This is the truth. You might have believed a lie. This is the truth. You move on to verse 11. Go down to verse 11. Let's see what happens in Berea. Now it says that these Jews, now I want you to remember this. The Bereans were Jews. The people he were talking to were Jews. And so many times in a lot of Bible-believing churches, they'll have the Bereans class, right? Well, not, they weren't all believers, <laughs> okay? These Jews, it says, were more noble. It means that they had a, an even-keeled mind. They were fair-minded. They were reasonable. They didn't come to the word with prejudice. They wanted to actually hear Paul out. So they were reasonable. It says that they received the word with all eagerness. They were sincere. They were hungry for the truth. They examined the scriptures daily. That's examining, that's a judicial word. It's where you basically are sifting all the evidence. You've you got a case you're working on, and you're sifting the evidence, you're weighing the evidence, and you're drawing conclusions based on the solid facts. And they were doing this daily. They were consistent about it. They were, they were focused on it. They were continual about it because they wanted to know. Because you know what? They were cautious. They wanted to see if what Paul was saying was true. They didn't want to just dismiss it right away, though some of them did end up dismissing it. There's a common practice among professing believers today, and it's a lack of cautious discernment, where people who say, I believe in Jesus, are willing to accept almost any teacher that sounds good or is persuasive. 
And you do need to test what is said on the word of God. Paul was very focused on the clarity of the gospel. He had a laser beam on, on God's truth, and he's telling the people, like I'm, I'm saying to you today, Jesus is the only solution for your sin problem. He shed his blood to pay for sin. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He, he's living and reigning today. He's coming back. And if you don't know Jesus, this is what he would be telling them. I'll tell you this today. If you don't know Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus right now and be saved, or else the sin is on you. Your sin is on you. But Paul had this commitment. He, he had a commitment to reason with them from the scriptures and not only to have a, a back and forth communication, a discussion, he had that conversation, but he also had proclamation very clearly and exposition where he explained the word. Let's move on to the third thing we see in this passage. Look at verse four. The converts, some people that actually became believers, some were persuaded and joined. I love that. They were persuaded, the Holy Spirit opened their hearts to believe the message, and they joined Paul and Silas. It means they became a part of the church. They became believers. A great many devout Greeks and many leading women. Go down to verse 12 in Berea. Many believed. Many Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now, we can't miss this here. This is really playing up the importance of women in God's economy, not just men. Jesus was consistently highlighting the worth of those who were devalued and undervalued. You go back to thinking of Lydia. Here is a businesswoman who is socially free, but bound, you know, in bondage to sin. Contrasted with a slave girl who is unnamed, who is not free socially, and is in bondage to sin. Both of them needed Jesus, and God opened both of their hearts to believe the message. You think about the time in which Paul was, was operating. There were many Jews that were rejecting Jesus, but there were many Jews that God was moving on their hearts. And there were many Greeks, men and women alike. Now think about whatever unlikely group you can think of. Maybe it's the Muslims, maybe it's the Mormons, maybe it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, or maybe it's just rank pagans who have no knowledge of God whatsoever. Like we're going to see this you know, uh, next week when we go into, uh, on, on a Mars Hill and see Paul uh, preaching in Athens. But whatever unlikely person or people group you can think of, pray to God for an opening to share the gospel with them. This is what life is all about as a Christian. Pray for an opportunity. Some of their relatives probably live nearby you. Maybe they come up your walkway. Like this man I got to talk to recently. You remember this too. If anyone comes to faith in Christ, it's because God did a work of regeneration in their hearts and they then came to faith in Christ and many people did. But you come to faith in Christ by sovereign grace. And as much as you want someone to be saved, you can't write their name in the book of life. It's the Lamb's book of life and only God knows who will be saved. But I love it that these, these people were persuaded and joined. They're converts. They were, they, they were persuaded and joined. John Owen, an uh, English theologian who lived from 1616 to 1683, wrote up some questions and answers to help people clarify what they believed. I think it will be helpful for us to, to look at two of those questions right now. And you can test yourself by these questions. If you say, well, you know, I'm not sure. If I'm converted, I'm not sure if I'm a real believer. Well, the first question he threw out was, what is lively faith? Basically, what's real faith? What's someone who really has faith in Christ? 
And here's his answer. An assured resting of the soul upon God's promises of mercy in Jesus Christ for pardon of sins here and glory hereafter. So ask yourself the question, is my soul resting upon God's promises of mercy in Christ? Do I have an assurance of that, that my sins are forgiven and I will be in heaven with God forever? Another question, he asks, what is justifying faith? What is justifying faith? And the answer, a gracious resting upon the free promises of God in Jesus Christ for mercy, with a, per, with a firm persuasion of heart that God is a reconciled father unto us in the son of his love. The idea here is that you are, are resting on God's grace, his free promises of God in Christ for mercy, and you're persuaded that God has reconciled you to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Test yourself. Move on to the critics. Number four, the, the other thing we see in this passage very clearly, verse five, the Jews were jealous. They, they brought wicked men. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked Jason's house. Jason was giving hospitality to the church. They were meeting in the church, in, in the house. The church was meeting in this house, and they're gonna bring them out, but they can't find them. So they drag Jason out and, and some other Christians before the authorities of the city, and they're yelling, and they're saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. You know, they're messing with us. They're meddlers. They're, they're babblers. They're foolish, and they're inciting the, the, the mob. There's these envious people, and the Jews were jealous. Why were they jealous? Because they were seeing their power and their influence eroding before their very eyes. So they falsely accuse them and say something very interesting. These men who have upset the world... Turn the world upside down, they've come here. What they're saying is, they've radically impacted our world and nothing seems the same. I guess the question is, could the same be said of us? In, in our neighborhood, in our home, in our workplace, in our school, in the places that God has given us to operate, could it be said of us that we have turned the world upside down? That someone because of our influence, because of the Holy Spirit in us, because of Christ in us, our hope of glory, that they would say, you know, you've radically impacted the world in which we operate here and nothing seems the same. They go on. Verse 7, Jason has received them. They're acting against Caesar. They're saying that there's another king. Hmm. His name is Jesus. Yes, there is another king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And, and, and verse 8, the people and the city authorities are just disturbed. They just worked up. So the, disciples, the, the, the apostles are, are, are falsely accused of preaching revolution and, and a rival kind of defiance against the emperor. This false accusation of political revolution had, had really a, an acknowledgement of Christ embedded in it. See, evil men understand. Jesus is a king whose right it is to rule over his people. Why do we have such trouble with that as professing believers? Why do we have such trouble with the lordship of Christ when these unbelievers could see it very clearly? There is a king who has a right to rule over his people. Why do we have such trouble with that? Verse 9, they take money, they, they bail them out basically, let them be bailed out and and then uh, drop down to verse 13. 
The, the Jews from Thessalonica basically chase Paul down to Berea. They're like hunters, you know, stalking Paul, and they hear that he has proclaimed the word of God in Berea, so they show up, and they're going to mess things up. They're going to agitate the crowds. They're going to stir up the crowds, and, and um, they've done this before from Iconium to Lystra, right? And they're contradicting the message, and they're fearing being seen as a place where Caesar is not treated as a god. They feared Roman intimidation. And isn't it, isn't it true the world fears what they have no need to fear and does not fear what they ought to fear? They fear the loss of political power, personal position. But they don't fear the wrath of God against their sin. He is the everlasting God. He does not change. Your sin is enmity towards God. It is it is spurning God, is rejecting God, and sin was punished at the cross in Christ. If you believe in him, that blood avails to you. But if your sins are punished in you, it means hell for you. If it's punished in Christ, it means heaven for you. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? That's the question you have to ask yourself. If it's true and you say, well, you know, I do believe that Jesus died for for me, then you're going to thank him right away and say, wow, if that's the case, that's a love you know, so amazing, so, so divine, that that demands my life, my soul, and, and everything. You'll say, wow, you know, I've been bought with a price. I need to glorify God in my body. I want you to see one last thing in this passage that would be easy to miss. It's in our Western individualistic mindset. It'd be easy to say, you know, when I leave church, and I'm here with my brothers and sisters, but when I leave, it's just me and Jesus. We're going on our way. It's just not true. The church is very important. It's the, it's the caring, compassionate community that God has placed us in. But look at verse 10. What did the church do when Paul and Silas were, were really getting harassed there in Thessalonica, well, they immediately sent Paul and Silas to Berea at night. They got them out of Dodge. <laughs> they escaped with their lives. Now, he's been kicked out at that point out of five cities, and they saved his life. Why? Because he was their brother in Christ. Look at verse 14. The, the brothers immediately sent Paul off to the sea. Silas and Timothy stay. Now, this, is, this is in Berea, and, and they bring him to Athens. They don't just mail him to Athens. They don't just you know, send him off. They say, we're going to walk with you. <laughs> we're taking you here. The church sends them away and protects their own. You, you look at, at 1 Thessalonians and look at the first two chapters. Go through that with a fine-tooth comb, and what you'll see is that they were a willing church. They loved the gospel, they love the word of God, they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you know what the church is? It is a family of brothers and sisters. You would never say to your kids, by the way kids, when you're outside the home, trash your brothers and sisters as much as you want. You know, talk behind their backs or talk in front of their faces, it's okay. No, you say, no, that's your brother and your sister. You know, our family sticks together. You, you, you protect them, you, you stand up for them. Well, that's the same even more so in the body of Christ. As much as you love your family, you have to love your family in Christ and say, we have a common interest, a common Lord, a common faith, a common life, a common love. And so you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and it says, 
if one part suffers, every part suffers. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices. That's what it's like, supposed to be like in the family of God, just like in your own family. You want to care for your brothers and sisters. And don't leave them hanging and hold on to each other and don't let people fall through the cracks. Care for them, share with them and, and initiate that. Don't wait for someone to do it for you, but see a need and meet it. That's what a faithful church does. They work together for the gospel and they support one another. And I just want to say, if you're wondering where the opportunities are, just look no further than right here on campus at Grace Church of Orange. Many, many opportunities here uh, to, uh, to work with people of all ages from the the youngest baby to the oldest adult, and if you say, well, what about off campus? Well, the fields are ripe for harvest. There are many roles for you to fill, speaking roles, supporting roles. We do focus on speakers a lot, don't we? But we've got Jason. We've got Jason here, hospitable to the church, helping the church out. And then, of course, we have Epaphroditus, Real quick, before, before I close, I want you to go over to Philippians chapter 2. I want you to see something. It's kind of a shame that not many people name their, their kids Epaphroditus. It really should be more popular amongst, amongst believing families. In fact, um, you know, I got five kids. I got one son. I think I'm going to rename, rename Michael Epaphroditus. So next time you see him, just say, hey, Epaphroditus, your dad renamed you. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary, this is Paul, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been, get this, he was distressed because you heard he was sick. He felt bad because everybody knew he was sick. This is a servant. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So, verse 29, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Why? Verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus worked hard to support Paul. Let me just say, as we conclude, these five marks of Paul's proclamation of the gospel are really what every Christian can relate to, courage, commitment, converts, critics, and the church. God has not given us a spirit of fear. We are to proclaim, communicate, preach the word of God, make disciples. You gotta, I gotta say, you might say, well, I only have a supporting role, and I'd say, you need to find your voice with the gospel because there are people that need you to interact with them. If you're a parent and you have kids in the home, your kids need to hear the word of God from you. If, if you don't have kids in the home, but you got, you're just there with your spouse, your spouse needs to hear the word of God from you. If you live all by yourself, then whoever you run into needs to hear the word of God from you. You can, you can engage in people's lives, even if your ministry isn't this upfront speaking ministry. And hopefully that God will bring, by his grace alone, converts, people coming to faith in Christ, and he does in his faithfulness. And there will always be critics present. There will always be enemies to the gospel present. But you have the church, and you need your family. Please don't leave today and say, it's just me and Jesus. If you say, well, but I don't have any friends. Well, make one. 
Pray for one. You need to phone a friend. You need to call in support at times because you need your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is possible for every Christian to have a part in courageously proclaiming Christ. If you're like Epaphroditus, I would just say this. Be like him. Be very, very close to someone who is proclaiming the gospel boldly. Know how you are supporting the work. So I hope today that you have recognized whether you're a believer or not. I hope it's very clear to you. I hope that you're all believers. I hope today that you have identified your part in boldly proclaiming Christ, a speaking role, a supporting role, but you're able to somehow connect the dots that yes, I can see that I am, I am not you know, more than three degrees removed from someone who is courageously proclaiming the gospel. And I hope that, that this would inspire you by God's spirit that he would inspire you to engage wholeheartedly in what he has called you to do. Because Christ inspires his church to courageously proclaim Christ, not alone, but together, in his strength and for his glory. Amen? All right, Lord God, thank you. Thank you that, that the love of Christ compels us to courageously communicate your truth in your strength, for your glory, not in our own strength, not for our own renown. And we want to do that wherever you send us, Lord, wherever, however you've wired us, no matter what, Lord. Please do your work in and through us, in Christ's name, amen.